Good to see you this morning. I want to welcome any visitors we have today. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning to worship and to come to God, to hear His Word, to respond in, in praise and thanksgiving and petition to Him. Uh, we're glad you're here. I want to point out a few things. If you've not gotten a bulletin, we have some on that back table, and you can grab one uh, on one side, we got the order of service, but the other side lets you know some things that are going on the next few weeks to be involved in. So if you've not had a bulletin, you want to see what's going on, just you can grab one in the back. Also, if you're a visitor, we have a connection card. It looks like this. It's uh, a small card that you can either drop in the offering plate or put in that giving box that's on the back wall there as well. And if, if you'd uh, like for us to be able to connect with you further today, then that's what that connection card is for. You can just let us know who you are and how we can best serve you, pray for you, minister to you. Um, also on that, there's I think there's a spot. Well, there's not a spot for it. We should put one on there. But <laughs> I want to encourage you to sign up for the Roundup if you're not signed up for that. Um, even for uh, our body, I'll just say, I've, I've heard people... Um, saying, like, I didn't know that was going on, and, and, and when was that announced? And the Roundup is where it's at, all right? So I want to encourage you to read your Roundup, to look at the upcoming events, to see what's going on in the church that way. We, we do our best to uh, make it known as many ways as we can, but that's really the key way to stay plugged in for uh, visitors, members, to know what's going on at the church. just want to point you to that. Uh, and we're, again, we're glad you're here this morning. We're excited to worship together and to hear God's Word. So before we open God's Word, let's just take a few minutes to pray. I want to invite you to quiet your own heart and, and to take 30 seconds or so just to begin praying to God in your own mind and heart, to come to Him and, and confess your sins to Him, to cast your cares on Him, to just quiet yourself before Him and know that, that we are coming into the presence of the Lord as we worship and open His Word. And then we'll pray together for a few minutes as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come to you this morning because you came to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we, we confess this morning that you are our Creator, that, that you are the one true God, and that we exist because you made us. You thought of us, you knit us together, you gave us breath. And we live and move because you are God, because you created us, because you sustain us this very moment. You are eternal and we are created. You are above creation. All things are from you and we are part of it, God. And we want to acknowledge that this morning. We want to come to you and, and praise you as the creator God who's given us life. Lord, we want to confess this morning, we need to confess that, that we have sin in our lives, that, 
that we act as if we weren't created, that we act as if you aren't God, we act as if, as if we are independent and as if, as if this world revolves around us, Lord. We act as if we are ourselves in control. God, we confess that rebellious heart that, that seeks to just unseat you from your throne in, in our lives and to seat ourselves in, in your place. We, we confess that our sin is worthy of eternal punishment. We confess that we deserve hell. We confess that we deserve condemnation. We deserve death. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve breath. And, and yet, God, because of these true realities that, that you are God, you're the creator, and we're sinners who've, who've separated ourselves from you, we, we praise you this morning that, that in your love and your grace, you came to us through Christ and you made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We praise you this morning, God, that we have a relationship with you again, that, that we have been called out of, from death to life. God, and that right now we're here in your presence and we're not consumed because you saved us by your mercy and your grace. God, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And thank you that because of your mercy in our lives, we can be confident that whatever we're going through, you are working it for our good. And so, God, we want to confess this morning that we have needs, we have trials, we have situations that cause anxiety and heartache, and we want to cast these things on you, knowing that through Christ you have made yourself our Father, and you are a good Father, you are a loving Father, you are a caring Father, and so we come to you, our Father, with our needs, and we say, help us, God. Please minister to our hearts. Comfort us, Father. Help us. Work in us. Provide for us, Lord. And thank you that we have the assurance that though your answer may not always take the form that we desire, that that you will answer this prayer in the best possible way in our lives. Lord, we know that we need to hear from you. We know that apart from hearing from you, we are cut off from relationship with you. And we know that when we open your word, that that you work powerfully inside of us and you draw us to your presence. You satisfy our hearts as a deer is satisfied by water. And so, God, we pray now as we just sang that you would open our hearts illumine our minds, that you would show us Christ through your word, that that you would minister to us and change us for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week I uh, gave a list of New Year's resolutions, and one of those resolutions was uh, form a new hobby. Our, Our Actually, that's not the one I meant to mention. That was a good one, too. But the other one is form a new skill, right? You guys remember that? And I, I mentioned that I learned a new skill last week about changing a tire. And so I want to tell you a little bit more about my tire-changing experiences the last few years. Um, in 2017, I did not know how to change a tire. And, and I noticed one time that my tire in the little Volkswagen was going flat. And so, um, 
you know, I tried to fill it up with air at the, at the gas station, and pretty soon it's going flat again. And so uh, I actually went over to Andrew Haynes, and Andrew helped me to, to get, that, get that tire up better. And I thought, okay, we're good to go. It seemed, seemed solid. And I drove over here to the church and uh, parked the car, came out a few hours later, and the car is just completely flat on the ground, tires all the way to the ground. And I, I don't know what to do. And, and what I realized is I don't know how to change a tire. And so Candace came and got me, and, and she drove me to work, picked me up, and we were trying to figure it out. So I called Ryan Howard, and I said, Ryan, I don't know how to change the tire. Will you, will you help me? And so Ryan came, and I realized as he was doing it, I, don't, I didn't even know that there was stuff back here in the trunk. You know, I was like, what, what is this thing? What's, what's a jack? How do you work this? He just showed me all the little ins and outs of it, and, and he changed my tire for me, and and I was very thankful, and it, and it worked, right? So, but really, Ryan just did it for me. Uh, I still didn't know how to change a tire. And so a couple weeks ago, Candace calls and says, uh, now on our pilot, the, the tire is completely flat on the ground. And, and so I said right away, I'm, I'm coming. I'm going to change it. I'm going to come change that tire. And so it is 30 degrees outside. This is one of those really cold days just a few weeks ago. And, and so I get some gloves on, and I go out and open up the... Uh, trunk and and I realized there's no tire here, <laughs> so I'm trying to find the tire first and and so I, I look up um, where's the tire on the pilot you know on the pilot and find that on YouTube okay and so find out where it is and then I get under the car and I'm trying to and I realize like, it's stuck it won't get down and so YouTube again okay how how do you get the tire off the pilot all right and so realize okay you gotta you gotta do this little thing here and tw- and it will lower and so I got that and I finally got the tire off the car. And I was like, I can do this. And I remembered Ryan just jacked up the car on the bug. And so I go get the jack and I figure out how to do it. And I find a spot and I start jacking it up and, and I pull the tire off. And then when I'm ready to put the new tire on. I realize that, you know, the other tire was flat. So it came off. But this tire is not flat. And so it doesn't fit where it's supposed to go. And my jack's here now and there's no tire on the car. And I can't just take the jack out and let the car just drop onto nothing. And so I go to the bug and I get the other jack out of the car and, and I jack the car up again with this jack. And then I take that jack out and then I get the tire on, the spare tire. I'm like, okay, the tire's on, I'm going I'm to go get a new tire. And I start driving the neighborhood, goes completely flat on me while I'm driving out of the neighborhood. And so I'm driving back into our driveway with the, with the rim dragging on the ground as I drive into the driveway. And... And then I jack it up again, take that tire off, go in the bug to get a new tire, take that home, put it on, and I tell Candace, you can go now. And she said, I might take the bug. <laughs> I might take the Volkswagen. And I said, no, I did it. I, it. It's on. It's good. It's ready to go. And, and I did. I, I changed the tire. It took me four hours, and I changed the tire. So that is, that was a proud moment for me that I changed that tire. Even though it took me four hours, I was so glad that I was able to do it. I didn't call anybody, though I YouTubed many videos during that process. But why was it such a proud moment? Why, why did I want to change that tire myself? I think it's because we have this desire for self-sufficiency. Like we, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to be able to do it ourselves with no other help and be able to just, just take pride in our own work. And that's not all necessarily a bad thing. Like in this case, it's probably good to learn how to change a tire if you don't know how to do that, right? But spiritually speaking, self-sufficiency is our greatest enemy. 
Spiritually speaking, the desire for self-sufficiency, the desire to be proud of our own work, is our greatest enemy. It's our greatest danger. And it's a danger that Christ needed to expose to the Pharisees and the Jews of his day. You know, he, he came, he's the promised Messiah, and he came to them and he said, he said, I am living water. Whoever, whoever comes to me will not be thirsty. And, and they reject him. And, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And they continue to reject him. He says, if you know me, you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And, and they say, we don't need freedom. He says, if you believe in me, you'll never taste death. And they make fun of him. He says, I am the eternal I am. And they stone him. They try to stone him. The Pharisees and the Jewish people rejected Christ's offer to come and be sufficient for them, to be what they need. And, and so in the end of John 8, we've been in the Gospel of John, at the end of John 8, Jesus eludes their stoning and he leaves the temple. And you can turn to John chapter 9. And what we see in John chapter 9 is, is Jesus with his disciples passing by outside the temple and seeing this man who's blind from birth. And we looked at verses 1 through 5 last week, and we saw that Jesus was resolved to be missional. And he, and he was resolved to see this man and to go to him and to shine light into him to meet his need. And so today we're going to look at the rest of the chapter and, and actually see what Jesus does in this man's life. Last week, we just saw Jesus have a moment with his disciples where he explained to them, here's what God has called me to do. Here's what we need to do right now with this man. Now we're going to look at what he actually does. And so we're going to walk through this story, and we'll even look at the first five verses again. And we're just going to walk through the story in four sections. We're going, to, we're going to just read it and observe some things together, and then let that lead us to understanding who Jesus is in John chapter 9 and how we need to respond. And so if you'll over to John chapter 9 and look down at verses 1 through 5, we'll just read these verses again briefly. And this is the first section of this story in John. It's the purpose of the sign. So what we're, what we're going to see is a sign from Jesus. And John's gospel is, is filled with several different signs that point to who he is. And so first five verses, what we're going to review here is the purpose of the sign. This is the first section of the story, the purpose of the sign. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Okay, so like I said, last week we looked at these verses. We saw that Jesus is resolved to be missional. He sees a man born blind, and he moves towards him. The disciples just see someone who's being punished for sin, but he sees opportunity to glorify God. He recognizes that God's aim in this man's life is to manifest his glorious works in him. And he also recognizes that God's going to manifest his works in the man by Jesus doing works by Jesus coming and being the light of the world. So just to review here, before we get into the rest of the text, what is the purpose of what we're about to see? What is the purpose? The purpose is not just for this man to be healed. The purpose is that Jesus is going to reveal that he's the light of the world by doing the works of God. What we're about to see is Jesus showing people that he is the light of the world. He claimed to be, in chapter 8, now he's going to show himself to be the light of the world. Does that make sense? So he said on the light of the world, now he's, now he's going to show he's the light of the world by doing a work that only God can do. 
And so that's the purpose of the sign. Now let's look more closely at the performance of the sign. Let's read verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, and that little phrase right there, connects. that's what connects this whole unit together. I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, here's what I'm going to do. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Okay, there are some interesting details in those verses, aren't there? You notice Jesus spits on the ground. He makes mud with his spit in the dirt, and he puts it in the man's eyes. Has anyone ever done that to anyone here? Just get some spit, put it in your eyes. Probably don't want that to happen to you, right? Interesting details. But before we look at those details, let's just not miss the forest for the trees here. Jesus gives sight to a man who was born blind. Jesus opens the eyes of a man who was born blind. This, this man has never seen light before. He's never seen his parents' faces. He's never seen the outside. He's, he's never seen anything. And, and in their day and age, that meant that he lived his whole life as a dependent beggar, absolutely needy. He is the picture of absolute need. There was nothing he could do for himself. All he could do, being blind for his whole life, was to sit and receive, to sit and beg, to sit and, and be dependent on other people to live a life. He had never seen, and Jesus opens his eyes. A man who was born blind, he gives him sight. And by giving sight to this man, Jesus is demonstrating two things. One, he's demonstrating that he has the power of God. Who else can open the eyes of someone who was born blind except God? So Jesus is demonstrating that he is God. He's demonstrating that I can do what no one else can do. I have power over nature. I can create light and create sight when there was nothing there. But even more, by giving sight to this man, Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. Turn back with me, hold your place in John, but turn back with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. Isaiah 42. This is a chapter that describes the coming of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. And in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, God is speaking to his servant, to the Messiah, foretelling what he's going to do. So so verse 5 in chapter 42 of Isaiah, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And so the Messiah was commissioned specifically to go to those in darkness and be light, to go to those who were blind and open their eyes. That's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light to those in darkness. And what does he, do? he He opens a man's eyes who are blind. He's essentially saying to all that are seeing him, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. I am the servant of the Lord. I am the Messiah. He's demonstrating that. Jesus' healing of this man is verification of his claims to be living water, the light of the world, the Son of God the Father, the eternal I am, 
Jesus is saying, everything I'm saying about myself is true. See it. Receive me. Now, what about how he does it? What about how he does it? Because could, could Jesus have not come up to this man, seen him blind, and just said the word, see, and the man would have seen, right? And first thing he would have seen was Jesus' face, and it would have just been a glorious moment, right? So, so why does Jesus not do that? Why does he spit on the ground, make some mud with his hands, get down on his knees, make some mud, put it on the man's eyes. He's still blind at this point. He puts it on the man's eyes. Now this man has to, has to walk to this pool with mud on his eyes. And we don't even understand how would he have even gotten there, this blind man trying to stumble his way with mud on his eyes to this pool to wash. And, and when, he, when he washes, he sees, but he, he doesn't even know who, who Jesus is, what he looks like. He just knows that he gave him sight. Why did Jesus do it this way? Why doesn't he just heal him? Well, the answer is, that it's related to his purpose. Jesus is not just trying to do a physical healing in this man's life. Jesus, remember, is given works to do. Remember what he said earlier? He said that the works of God might be displayed in him. We need to do the works of him who sent me. There's not one work in mind here. One work is the physical healing, but there's more works that Jesus is going to do. He is setting the stage for an even greater revelation of his glory to this man. He, he is setting things up for this man so that this man realizes who Jesus is and responds to that. And, and so Jesus is, it's like he's, he's setting the script. He's, he's, he's making things to be a certain way so that certain events happen in the next few verses that will ultimately lead to a greater revelation of his glory. And so what he's doing seems odd, but it's very intentional. We're going to even see more as we go on why he did what he did. So we've seen the purpose of the sign is to display the works of God, is to show that Jesus is the light of the world. The, the performance of the sign shows that this, this man who was blind is given physical sight, and Jesus is who he claims to be. He's the Messiah. He's the light of the world. He is the servant of the Lord. And now we see the response to the sign. This is the bulk of our chapter, verses 8 through 38, the response to the sign. And John records for us five different interactions in this chapter, five, five different scenes with, with different people that are responding to what has happened. And we're just going to walk through these scenes, walk through these interactions, and see how different people in Jerusalem responded to what Jesus did here. And, and so first, the first scene is, is with this man's neighbors and, and, and the people that passed by him all the time, the people that knew of this man and that had seen him day after day, month after month, year after year, blind and begging. What is their response? Look down at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Yes, it's he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. We'll stop there. So, so this man's neighbors, the ones who had seen him blind day after day, month after month, year after year, seen this man begging, probably gave alms to him, now see him seeing and what's their response? Skepticism. 
Their response is skepticism. It's, it's, it's unbelief. It's, it's an unwillingness to just celebrate with him. This man has been blind. And when they see him, they question it. They say, no, that can't be him. That, that couldn't be him because he was blind. And, and, and then he just continues to insist, no, it's me, it's me, it's me. And, and they just won't accept it. They say, how, how did he do it? Well, well where is he now? And, and then what do they do? They, they bring him to the Pharisees. They, they, they won't just look at the evidence and celebrate the one who healed him, but instead they go to the Pharisees, they take him to their religious leaders, and they say, you, you help us here. You, you decide what's going on because, because this, this can't have happened, right? And so they decide to, to look to their religious leaders and rather than respond to the evidence themselves. They're, they're skeptics. And so the next scene is, is with the Pharisees. Look at verses 14 through 17. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, he's a, he's a prophet. It will stop there. What is the Pharisees' response to this man? It's division. Their response is divided. They don't know what to do with what is happening. So it's important to see that John waits till now. He waits till the Pharisees enter to reveal when this took place. When did Jesus heal the blind man? On the Sabbath. Remember what happened last time Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath? Back in chapter 5, he, he healed the man who was lame and, and trying to get in the pool. He made him walk, and he told him to take up his mat and walk. And, and the Pharisees looked at Jesus, and, and they hated him because he was working on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, my father's working, and now I'm working. And then they, then they decided, We're, we need to kill this man because, because he's claiming to be equal with God. So last time Jesus healed on the Sabbath, that it resulted in some pretty nasty confrontation between him and the Pharisees. And here he is, knowing it's the Sabbath, and what does he do? He works. This, this is why he did what he did. He, he kneels down and he makes mud because that was breaking the Sabbath. To heal him this way, instead of just to say it, was, was an intentional way to break what the Pharisees thought was how to obey the Sabbath. Jesus is intentionally breaking their version of obedience on the Sabbath in order to bring himself into confrontation with them. This, this is what I meant, that Jesus is setting things up because he, he is confronting them at the very point of their unbelief. You, you see, they've got a theological problem. that They know that working on the Sabbath is a sin. And Jesus, according to them, just sinned. But they also believe that sinners could never do something like this. And so they've got two truths that stand in opposition to one another. A sinner could never do this. Jesus is a sinner. And so they're divided. They don't know what to do with it. And they even ask the man, well, well, well he healed you. What do you think? And, and this, this man, you can see a progression began to happen. He, he, he says he's a prophet. See, he, he's got no problem recognizing what's plain to him. This man healed my eyes. He's got to be from God. He's got, he's got to be a prophet. But, but they are not willing to see the evidence, and to make that leap. And so, so what do they do? Well, they decide we're not going to believe 
we're not going to believe what you say. This must be a hoax. Look down at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents, until they called the parents of the man. So this is, this is the third scene. We see how the parents respond. The, the Jews, the Pharisees, they, they know this must be a hoax because Jesus is a sinner. Jesus could never have done this, so this man must not have been blind. They call the parents in. They say, confirm for us. You're, you're, this is your son, right? He wasn't blind. Look, look what they say. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So what's the parent's response to this sign? It's fear. The parent's response is, is fear. Fear that if they align themselves with Christ in any way, that they will lose their place in the Jewish community. To, to be put out of the synagogue is, is just to be excommunicated from Jewish life altogether. That, that was the central place for all life to happen. To be excommunicated was, was just to be isolated completely, and, and, and they, they fear these Jewish leaders, what they're going to do if they even hint at the fact that they know who healed them, if they, if they even begin to align themselves with Christ. And so, so amazingly, they just deflect it to their son. They just say, ask him, he's of age. And they do that because they're looking out for themselves, and they don't want to align themselves with Christ. But it's important to know that they do confirm, yes, he was blind, yes, this is our son. This really happened. So the neighbors and now the parents are all confirming this man really was blind, and now he really sees. And so the Pharisees, again, have to face this problem. They have to, they have to face this reality that we believe this man's a sinner, but this sinner just opened this man's eyes. And so they, they bring the man who was born blind back in in verse 24, we see more of their response. Look down at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, glorify God by agreeing with us that Jesus is a sinner. Agree with us that, that he's a sinner and, and that would glorify God. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already. You wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. They hurled insults at him, saying, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So the Pharisees' final response is rejection. Just outright rejection. Rejection of the evidence. Rejection of the man. You know, they, they cannot deny at this point the reality that Jesus healed this man. They, they can't deny the evidence. They, they know he has, but they cannot bear to admit that they're wrong about Jesus. They cannot bear to admit that he's the Messiah. They cannot bear to admit that his claims are true. Because if his claims are true, that means that they are lost. That means that they need light. That means that they need water. That means that, that, that they're totally wrong. And they can't bear to admit that. And, and so in this process, what we see is the religious teachers of Israel becoming blind. And we see this blind man at the end teaching them. He, he, he's saying to them, guys, just... It's, it's just easy logic, right? I mean, this leads to this. So he's from God. So what he, what he does, he, he's teaching them, and, and how do they respond? They, they just say, you were born in utter sin. Now, that, that harks back to the disciples' theology of this man, right? They saw a man born blind, and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? They, they believed that th- this, man's, this man's suffering must be the result of his sin, and now, even though he's been healed, they refuse to recognize that healing, and, and they still treat him according to how they've always treated him. This man's a sinner. He was born in sin. That's why he was born blind. It doesn't matter that Jesus healed him. He's born in utter sin. He's, he's trying to teach us, and they cast him out. They cast him out of the synagogue. They cast him out of the community. And in so doing, they become blind to the reality of Christ. So there's one final response, and that's the man himself. How does the man himself respond to what Jesus has done for him? Now, we've kind of been glossing over it for this point in the sermon, but I want you to kind of look back with me and notice a progression that's taking place in this man's mind. Look at verse 11 with me. He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. So, who's Jesus at this point in the man's understanding? He's a man, he's the man called Jesus. But as, as they question him, and as this continues in verse 17, who do, who do you say that he is? What do you say about him? Well, I think he's a prophet. I think the man called Jesus must be a prophet because of what he did. And then down in verse 27, they're, they're questioning him again, and, and he asks them, do you want to become his disciples too? Which means that he considers himself a disciple of Christ now. He's decided somewhere in this process in his mind, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to learn from him. I'm going to, I'm going to attach myself to this man, this prophet. And then verse 33, as he's talking to them, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But he did something. He opened my eyes, which means this man's obviously from God. And so this man's understanding is progressively getting greater of Jesus. He's, he's beginning to see who Jesus is. Begin to see he's not just a man, he's a prophet. And he's not just any prophet, he's a prophet that I want to follow. He's, he's, he's not just a prophet to follow, he, he's, he's obviously someone that's sent from God to us because of what he did. And now Jesus finds him. Look at verse 35. Jesus hears they cast him out. And so he, he looks for him. Having found him, he said, Do you believe 
in the Son of Man? The man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So Jesus re-enters the scene, and the man's response to Christ is not skepticism, it's not unbelief, it's not fear, it's not rejection, it is faith and worship. Faith and worship. He, he comes to realize that this man who healed me is the Messiah. He's the Son of Man. And he's not just a human Messiah. He's the Lord. This, this word worship is only used here in John before the cross and resurrection. It, it, in, in reference to Jesus. It, it's used by Thomas. Tom, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. But, but here is the only pre-crucifixion example of someone who comes to recognize that Jesus is the Lord. Comes to receive his claim that he is the I am, as he says he is. And he worships him. Jesus gave the man physical sight, and now he gives him spiritual sight to see that he's the Messiah, that he is God, that he's worthy of his worship and his trust. And so we see five responses. We see, we see this sign that's performed, and we, and we know that Jesus wants to show that he's the light of the world, that he does the works of God, and he does this sign, and we see all these responses from the people. And now what we see at the end is, is Jesus wrapping it all up for us in a nice package to say, here's what's going on, you guys. Here's, here's what all of this means. He says in verse 39, this is the meaning of the sign. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the meaning of the sign Jesus teaches in these verses that there are two types of blind people. He teaches that everyone's blind. And then he says, but there are two kinds of blind people in this world. There are those who acknowledge their blindness, and there are those who deny their blindness. So Jesus is saying, he says that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. But then down in verse 41, we, we get more what he, what he means because he says, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. He doesn't say now that, but because you see, your guilt remains. You, you say you see. You think you see. You claim to see. But you're really blind too. So there's, there's the blind who know they're blind, who acknowledge they're blind. And then there's the blind who pretend they're not. There's the blind who deny it. There's the blind who claim to see. Jesus says that he came to give sight to the blind. That, that is to give sight to those who acknowledge their blindness and to blind those who see. That, that is to, to those who claim to, to, to see, even though they're blind. Jesus says, I'm going to blind them irrevocably. I'm going to blind them permanently. As long as they claim to see, they will be blind to their own blindness. That's what he says. That's why he came. He came to give sight to those who acknowledge their blindness, and he came to blind those who 
pretend that they see. We need to see one other thing from these verses before we can really understand what he means. In verse 41, he brings up guilt. He brings up the concept of guilt. And here we begin to see what the metaphor stands for, because guilt is not a concept having to do with blindness. Guilt is a concept having to do with our hearts and with worship. And he brings these two together. He says, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. You might even see a footnote that says you'd not have sin. The word there is, is sin. If you, if you were blind, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any sin. But because you say we see, your sin remains. So, so Jesus is teaching that those who are blind have had, had their guilt removed. Those, those who acknowledge their blindness. But, but those who don't acknowledge their blindness, those who claim to see, their guilt remains. Their sin remains. It's still theirs. And so what does Jesus mean? He's, he's trying to tell them, this is, this is what all of this healing that I just did is pointing to. What does he mean? Well, well he, I struggled this week because we think of spiritual blindness in a, in a very theological, theologically tight category. If you're spiritually blind, it means that, that your heart is unable to see. But here in this chapter, blindness is both a good thing and a bad thing, right? So we need to understand the metaphor according to this chapter, not according to our systematic theology, right? We need to understand what does Jesus mean by blindness here? And what Jesus means by blindness is blindness is a metaphor for spiritual need. It's a metaphor for spiritual need. It's not a metaphor for lacking spiritual vision. It's a metaphor for having spiritual need. So it helps me to think about the blind man. And remember, he was a beggar. Because he was blind, he was a beggar. He lived his whole life in need. And so picture this man born blind, because he's blind, unable to do anything for himself, completely dependent on others. That's blindness. That's, that's spiritual blindness. All people are in spiritual need. All people are spiritual beggars that have nothing to offer, that are completely dependent on the outside for their life. That's what Jesus means by blindness. All people are that way because of sin and guilt. The reason that all people are beggars spiritually, are blind spiritually, is because we all have sin. We all have guilt. We we all face condemnation. We all are powerless to do anything about it. Now what we need to see is that guilt for sin, that, that guilt that we have for sin, it will be removed by all who acknowledge their spiritual need. Anyone who who says, yes, I'm needy, yes, I'm a beggar, yes, I have nothing to offer spiritually, that guilt will be removed. But for anyone who denies that, for anyone who holds on to to the false notion that they have something to bring, something to offer, something in and of themselves, their guilt is theirs to bear. Jesus saves all who confess their need of him. But those who deny their need of him will be judged for their sin. He will save all who confess their need of him. All who confess that blind begging condition. But anyone who pretends that they're not blind when they really are, that sin is theirs to bear. That, that's the meaning of John 9. That's, that's the meaning of not only the healing itself, which shows that Jesus has the power to open blind eyes. And that's our only hope, right? That he can do this. He can open blind eyes. But all these responses, the skepticism, the fear, the rejection, 
All those responses are people who are not willing to admit their blindness. People who will be judged because they're not willing to be like that beggar in their own hearts. So what's the meaning of John 9? What's what's revealed about Jesus in this story? What's revealed is that he is needed. He's needed. We need him. You need him. I need him. Every person absolutely needs Jesus because he's the only Savior. We need Jesus because we need forgiveness. Every one of us has a sin problem, a fundamental, irrevocable sin problem, unchangeable. We can't do anything about it. We are sinners to our very core, and we've sinned, so we have guilt. And what we need is forgiveness. We need need that sin to be wiped clean. We We need God to say to us, I forgive your sin. But God's a righteous judge. He's not just a gracious father. He's a righteous judge who cannot just wipe sin under the rug. He can't just pretend like it's not there. To do that would would be the height of injustice, and he would not be God if he did that. And so we need Jesus because Jesus comes, and on the cross what he's doing is he is bearing our guilt. He goes to the cross, someone who's never sinned, the only one who's never sinned, and bears the guilt of sinners. And he takes the punishment for that sin. He, He takes the penalty that the just judge gives so that we can be forgiven. We need Jesus because we need forgiveness. But I want to press in further and say we need forgiveness because we need Jesus. Okay, so follow me here. We need Jesus because we need forgiveness. We have, we have a sin problem. We, we need that sin to be taken care of. But, but why is that important? Why do we need forgiveness of our sin? Because sin separates us from Jesus. We need forgiveness because we need him. Look, look at this blind man. Where, where does he end up? in this chapter. He's been given his sight. So Jesus has come to him, and he's, he's shown light into his life, and he's given him sight, so now he can live. Do we see him going and sightseeing? Is he going and just checking out the Grand Canyon? Is he going and, and living his life, seeing all these things, just, just living it up because Jesus has saved him, and now he can live this awesome life that he's always wanted to live? No, what we see is the blind man falling down before Jesus and worshiping him. We see this man has been given his sight, realizing that this is where I want to be. I want to be here with Jesus. I want to attach myself to him. I want to follow him. I want to worship him. Because this satisfies my heart. This is what I've always wanted. Not not physical sight. I thought I wanted that. But now that I see who Jesus is, this is who I want. We need Jesus because we need forgiveness. But we need forgiveness because we really need Jesus. Our sin separates us from him, but because of the cross, he takes care of our sin for us. He he delivers us from it. He separates us from it so that now we can enter into his presence and not be destroyed. (laughs) We can enter into his presence and not be judged. We can enter into his presence and enjoy the gladness of worship. The good news of the gospel is that the only thing that we need to do to experience Jesus is confess our need of him. The gospel message is that because of the cross, all that sinners need to do to get back to Jesus is say, we need him. We need you, Jesus. It's to acknowledge that there's nothing we can do. 
Jesus saves all who confess their need of him, but those who deny their need of him will be judged for their sin. I want to press in even a little further this morning before we finish. Why is it this way? Why is it this way that, that only those who confess their need, only, the, only those who acknowledge their blindness will be saved? But, but why is it that God judges those who don't? We don't need to turn there, but we looked at Isaiah 42 earlier, and we saw that the Messiah is going to come. He's going to shine light into the darkness. He's going to bring freedom to the prisoner. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. We read one verse further. The very next sentence is God saying, My glory I will not give to another. The Messiah is going to come to the blind and open their eyes. He's going to come to those in darkness to shine light because I will not give my glory to another. So I'm going to send my Messiah to those who know that there's nothing they can boast in. I'm going to send my Messiah to those who know that they bring nothing to the table. Where Jesus is treasured as the one we need, God is glorified. Really, that's the main idea of this sermon, that where Jesus is treasured as the one we need, God is glorified. See, as long as people claim to have any self-sufficiency apart from Christ, they're detracting from the glory of God. If, if you come to God and, and, and you say, look what I've brought to you. Look what I have. Look at my life. Look, look, at, how, look at how I'm doing. That, that detracts from his glory. God's not glorified by us pretending that, that we have something to add to him, something to bring to him, something to offer to him. God is glorified by us coming empty and saying, we need you. That's what glorifies God, is us coming broken and empty and just saying, we need you, God. And the wonderful thing is that when we confess our need of Christ, we find that our hearts are satisfied not by self-sufficiency, but by insufficiency. See, we, we think that we want to be self-sufficient, but that just leads to brokenness and to destruction. But when we come to God insufficient, we come and say, I, I, I'm just a beggar in need. I'm completely blind without you. Then, then we find our joy in beholding his glory. And so I want to conclude today with three applications for us. And if the music team could come up now and they're just going to begin playing as we enter into a time of meditation and reflection, seeking to respond to this word ourselves. How does this impact us today at Redeemer Church? Three applications. First, turn from self-sufficiency. Turn from self-sufficiency. It would be very easy to hear this message as a believer and just to say, yeah, that's, that's me, I did that. But the truth is that every day we are tempted to be self-sufficient. We're, we're always tempted to be self-sufficient. We're always tempted to look to ourselves, to depend on ourselves, to think that we bring something. And the more that we grow, the more tempting it is to think that our growth is owing to us. The more tempting it is to think that, that this, this has to do with me, when, when really all the growth that has come comes from Christ. And so we need to turn from self-sufficiency. The, the, the prayer of our hearts every day and right now needs to be, I need you, Jesus. I need you. Right now, I need you. I've got nothing to bring. I've got nothing to offer. So turn from self-sufficiency. If, if you have not done that ever, if you've not come to Christ and said, I've got nothing to offer, I've got nothing to bring, 
then do that this morning. Do that as we sing. Talk to someone and tell them that that's what you want to do, that you realize that you've got nothing good to offer, that your righteousness doesn't measure up to anything before God, that, that in reality, spiritually, you are just a beggar, and turn from it. Turn from thinking that you're something. Stop, stop claiming to see when you're blind. And then, once you turn from self-sufficiency, treasure Jesus' provision. Treasure his provision. It's too easy to just remember as a fact that Jesus has provided for us without treasuring it. But Jesus told a story, a parable. He, he, he actually had a woman come to him and, and was anointing his, his feet with perfumes and, and wiping his feet with her hair and and another Pharisee said, this is such a waste. And, and Jesus said, she is forgiven much because she's loved much. And his point there is saying, not that this amount of love is what leads to forgiveness, but because she has been forgiven, it's bursting out in love. It, she, she, she's realizing how much she's been forgiven and it's resulting in love. And what it's saying is that when we grasp our forgiveness, when we grasp that we were beggars that had guilt and Jesus forgave us, when we see it with the eyes of our hearts, that that leads to treasuring Christ and it leads to loving Him. And so treasure His provision. Say to Him, thank you for meeting my need. Say, I need you, Jesus, and then say, thank you for me to my need. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for coming into my life and shining your light on me. And then finally, tell others your story. Tell others your story. I once was blind, but now I see. That That's the man's response. He, he didn't know a whole lot about Jesus. He didn't even fully understand at this point that he was the Messiah, but he knew what Jesus had done for him. He knew that he was blind and that he sees. And in that, he gives us a model to go into the world, not with, not with necessarily this theologically tight presentation for people, though there's nothing wrong about that. They need that at some point. But instead, to go to the world and say, have you heard about Jesus? Because because here's what he did for me. I was blind. I was in sin. I was guilty. And now I'm not. Now I'm free. Now I'm, I'm saved. He did this for me. Do you want to be his disciple too? Do you want to follow him? And, and, and then they can begin to learn about him. They can begin to understand what he's done. But, but tell your story to people. And that story magnifies Christ. Because every time you tell that story... It proclaims to the world, I need him. I needed him then, I need him now. And when Jesus is treasured as needed, God is glorified. And we're satisfied in that glory. And so let's turn right now from our self-sufficiency, treasure his provision, commit to make that provision known. Even as we sing this next song, I want to encourage you to bring your heart to Christ as it truly is. Not not to pretend like you don't have needs, but instead to come and say, you know all my needs. You know I'm blind. Meet my need. Let's stand together and we'll sing.